What's up, guys? It is the Blue Bloods coming at y'all with our second episode of our Pac-12 in 31 Days. And we are joined by Utah Beat Reporter, Sports Director for KSL News, and also AP Top 25 Voter. Josh Furlong is joining us today, and I just want to say I appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, happy to be here. I'm always happy to talk sports, so. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, with Utah, I feel like, you know, we did a whole thing on our podcast already late late last year, but there's no other way I want to start this interview other than honoring and shedding light on Todd Jordan, who tragically passed away at the end of last year on Christmas night. He was the Pac-12 freshman of the year. He was my breakout player of the year for the Pac-12 and had one of the brightest futures in the country. He just kind of speak on what made him such a special player and what kind of impact he had on campus for this university and just around the community. Yeah. Ty Jordan was, was one of those dynamic players where, you know, as a freshman, you're kind of trying to get your feet underneath you. You're trying to figure out things. Um, But, you know, from the very beginning, he just seemed to click and and it was a little different this year since, since we didn't really get to see him as, as closely as, as in years past because of COVID. But, you know, there, there was something about him where he, it just kind of clicked, right? Like he got into the game and he figured it out. Um, and, and every single game he continued to get better. It's like he fed off each game or something like that. And I know he used, you know, the death of his mom, um, you know, just, just a few months before the season as kind of motivation to, to really get going. But there was just something about him where, you know, you, you just couldn't stop him. Uh, we, we learned later that he was also so instrumental in, in, the locker room and, and the different aspects that he had there where, you know, he, I think it was our, you know, the university of Utah's athletic director that had said something like he was the mayor of, of, of campus in a lot of respects, because a lot of the student athletes would, would come to him and he'd just kind of like be their guy that they would go to their rock. And so when somebody like that, you know, is tragically killed, it, it just kind of sent shockwaves through the entire athletic department, through the entire fan base and everybody you know, that was quite the, the shocking news to wake up to, to, to have to report, you know, something like that. Um, personally, my son, um, I wrote a story about this, but my son, he, he's, uh, he's nine years old, and he's, he kind of considers himself kind of what I, he calls himself, the, the tiny guy. And uh, that was kind of his guy, you know. I mean, he, he, he looks at all these guys that are small and, and are able to perform well and and it was just kind of a, you know, a blow to even, you know, these people that were, were not really that invested into a program. And so, you know, it's just something that, you know, you, you think you've got this future, you know, all-star back that's going to be there. He's going to go to the NFL in a few years after all this. And then it's just kind of dashed. And then how do you pick up pieces from that, you know? So I, I think it's been hard for the university, but, um, you know, they've got, they've got good talent. And, and I think it's, it's a way for them to honor him in a way that, you know, most programs don't really get to experience and hopefully don't have to experience that way. Right. Yeah, we covered it um, on the podcast, and it was tragic. when I mean, he had the brightest, like you said, that's NFL potential future right there, too. So it's horrible to see that. But also, just as a Pac-12, I mean, the Pac-12 in general went through so much this season in terms of are we going to have a season, are we not? August 11th, Larry Scott made the decision to postpone the season it was praised by some. Others didn't really love it, especially when the SEC, ACC, and Big 12 were playing football at the time. What was your initial reaction to the decision? And, you know, we saw some programs fight back. Was Utah one of those programs that was like, okay, we want to play football in the fall? Yeah, Kyle Whittingham was definitely a, a, a guy that wanted to play. 
but he was also trying to, to toe that line of, you know, we've got to make sure that we're, we're healthy, that we're able to be in an environment where we can play, you know, and I think Kyle, he, he would have played at any moment that he could have. And then right when the season started for Utah, they had a game canceled because of COVID. And so it's, it's one of those situations where even though they were ready, their entire team kind of had to shut down because of, of that instance. And so it, it, you know, it's, it's interesting to look back on that and try to figure out, okay, did they make the right decision? Did they not? Especially when, you know, their, their rival up the street essentially got to play an entire season and had this you know big season that they just got to sit there and watch. And so it's, it's hard to kind of, you know, play that, you know, 2020 hindsight is 2020 game and try to figure it out. I think, you know, if, if Utah was on their own and they were doing a scenario where the PAC 12 wasn't involved, I, I, I bet they probably would have tried to push it a little earlier um, Kyle obviously wants to play football and he wants to play it now. Uh, but at the same time, you kind of have to balance how the state is working, how the COVID situation is working. And so I, I think he was going to follow whatever, whatever situation the, the conference was, was going to, you know, force them to do. But at the same time, he wanted to play for sure. Right. I feel like that's kind of the sentiment I've gotten, you know, across all the schools that got pushed when we did the Big Ten in 30 days. And all those schools were like, man, we all wanted to play, but we were, our hands were kind of tied. But let's get into the on-field performance. A 3-2 and two record, but that they had an early game canceled, I believe, against Arizona. Correct. But they end the season on a three-game win streak. They're one of the hottest teams in the Pac-12 down the stretch. Did this season for you, though, meet, exceed, or fall short of your preseason expectations going in? I think there was differences, right? I think coming into the season, the defense was expected to take a huge step back. You had, if I'm, it's been a while now, so I can't remember my numbers, but I think seven guys drafted to the NFL that year. You had all these guys that just had, had left this huge hole in that defense. And, you, you know, Utah's always been known to be able to um, regroup, restep at, at the defensive position, but I don't think anybody expected it to be as good as it was, especially in the secondary where they were starting guys that really hadn't gotten a lot of playing time. And so in that in that respect, that was a huge, um, you know, opportunity for them to be able to show that, you know, they, they exceeded expectations. But then offensively, they came in and they were supposed to be, you know, this powerhouse. You had Jake Bentley, who had a lot of SEC experience as a quarterback, who was, you know, a starter, and he wasn't one of the prominent SEC schools by any means, but at the same time, a starter in the SEC means something. And he comes in, and he, you know, he he didn't win the starting job. You have Cam Rising, who won it, and then you know he's he's out halfway through the their first game of the season, and you're there to rely on this this senior quarterback. And so, I, I think the expectation was there that he was going to do well, and that everything was going to be great offensively, and then it just sputtered. I mean the offense other than Ty Jordan really didn't do anything. And a lot of the receivers were frustrated because they couldn't get anything going. And so you, you, you really just took a step back in, in my eyes in terms of offense, um, especially knowing that Ty Jordan was the entire offense, you know what I mean? And, and I think, I think that's what was so difficult for them is, you know, they are a talented team and they're never going to necessarily be out of games, but at the same respect, like they didn't do anything to win games. Their defense won it for them and, and, and kept them in. So I think, it was kind of a bipolar year for them in, in some respects and, and flipping, you know, what the, the script was supposed to be before the season started. Right. And, you know, you talk about the quarterback issue. Well, the quarterback battle has been one to watch this all season. You have Charlie Brewer coming in from Baylor to compete for the job. Cam Rising is back. He was the initial starter last year. 
But then also like the X factor in this whole thing, uh, Jaquindon Jackson, four-star recruit out of Texas, number three quarterback, dual-third quarterback in the country in his class. For you, though, just following spring practice, who really shined? And for you, who is the favorite to go into 2021 as quarterback one? You know, that's that's the interesting question that I've, you know, I've tried considering many times is, you know, Charlie Brewer had a, you know, as good of a, a spring game as you can consider. Um, I, I kind of mentioned that knowing that, that also they didn't allow him to be live. And so there was potentially four or five sacks that, um, that they could have had against him and, and maybe even more given the pressures and different things that way or less given you know the assignments. But, you know, he did everything that he was supposed to. His, his reads were great. He's, he's got a nice progression. He's got a nicely timed ball. I think that gives him a huge leg up, especially knowing what we, what we have seen from him at Baylor, you know, two years ago when they were in the national championship um, contention uh, with the playoffs and everything. Um, He's got that talent. And so I think naturally it's easy to sit here and say, okay, Charlie Brewer is the guy that's going to get the the job. He's going to be the guy that that easily uh, wins, but I, I wouldn't put it past Cam Rising to still get that job. I think Kyle Whittingham really likes what he sees out of Cam Rising. Unfortunately, nobody really has seen him. Even at Texas, when he was there, you, you only got a smattering of kind of what his talent is because he was he was you know behind some other players, and so there's there's a lot of things that that are still unknown um, from all the the accounts that I've heard. You know, they really love Cam Rising, but I think that's probably equal to what Charlie Brewer. Um, has brought, and I think you're going to see a really stiff competition this fall. Right. I mean, and that was the main storyline through spring, but there were a lot of holes to fill, a lot of, you know, position battles going on. The Utah spring game wrapped up April 17th, and the red team pulls out a win. But what were some of the bigger storylines you were watching other than the quarterback battle? And from spring practice in general and even the game, what were your biggest takeaways as for this program as a whole? I think for me, it was trying to figure out who does replace Ty Jordan. Utah has always been a huge running back-led offense, um, and so you, you wanted to see there. They didn't have their starter, um, Makai Bernard, who was kind of the expected starter in, but you got to see T.J. Pledger and Chris Curry, two transfer running backs that are into the program, kind of make their own. I, and so I think for me, like we got to see how talented they are and how they can be utilized in this offense that, that 100% is, is fit around the running back game. Um, and so I think just being able to see them and, and see, okay, Utah's got a dearth of talent there that they're not dearth, sorry, that they've got a ton of talent there that uh, uh, they can they can build around. And so there's that. But I'm still, you know, it, you know, if I'm looking at this as from a fan's perspective, I still want to see who's going to emerge as a wide receiver. You know, Britton Covey's going to be the guy. I mean, it's it's clear he's been there for 19 years, so it's easy to see that that uh, you know he he's got the talent. But then you want to be able to see somebody like a Solomon Enos or you want to see uh, some other guys step up that, that haven't had as much um, notoriety around them in, in terms of the offensive game. And I think you saw glimpses of that. They used Solomon Enos in a, in a couple different packages that they haven't used him before. Um, they had him up the middle. You know, they had him you know, on off, uh, different scenarios. And it wasn't a lot of touches by any means, but um, he was able to, to get there. There's... You know, Jaquindon Jackson, you mentioned him earlier as a quarterback, but I'm curious to see what they do with him because he he doesn't come off as, as the best quarterback on the team right now, and they've clearly you know lined themselves up well. But he's he's got so much talent that you've got to be able to figure out what to do with him, whether that's the Wildcat, whether they, 
use him as a, a you know a slot receiver or as a running back or whatever they use. I I feel like you've got to be able to get him on the field somehow, and I just don't know how Utah is going to utilize that. But you know, I think I think that'll be an interesting dynamic. And those were kind of my takeaways in terms of uh, the the players that I was looking at the most. Right, and I mean, I look at this program, and it's one of those programs that is always in the fray, and it's a program you can never overlook. And I give a lot of credit to Kyle Whittingham for that. He's been at this program in some capacity since 94. That was before I was even born. So this guy's been coached at the same place before I was born. And, you know, he's he's been the head coach since 04, multiple Coach of the Year awards, three South Division titles since they moved to the Pac-12, undefeated season in 08. The, the list can go on and on about his accolades. What has Whittingham meant to this program? And I know Urban Meyer was there, but it was in for a limited time. Is Whittingham the greatest coach in Utah football history? I think you kind of have to give that argument to him, right? I mean, I think, you know, Urban Meyer completely set this program on a, on a plane that they've never experienced. There was other coaches that kind of got them there and set Urban Meyer up for success. But, you know, he, he put them on the map, essentially, and allowed them to be able to be where they are. But then, you know, Kyle comes in and, you know, nobody was going to beat Urban. I mean, how do you go from being the BCS buster and trying to figure out, you know, how to kind of replicate that season? And then a few years later, he goes undefeated as well and really solidifies it and allows Utah, not allows, but pushes Utah to get into the Pac-12. And so I think just just in terms of his consistency and, and what he's brought and, you know, in, in allowing the program to grow in a natural but competitive way, you, you kind of have to. I mean, like, he has to be the guy that is looked at as, as the guy that that cements the legacy for Utah on the map. I mean, Utah isn't in the Pac-12, you know, without Urban, but at the same time, Utah isn't, you know, consistently considered one of the best teams in the Pac-12 without Kyle Whittingham. And so I think they go hand-in-hand, hand, but Kyle's probably definitely edged out there. And I, I think it's a funny argument because a few years into the Pac-12, you know, Kyle was on the hot seat. They had two five-and-seven seasons back-to-back. And uh, you could tell that there was progress in that second five and seven season. But I mean, it was it was obvious that there was some problems with the athletic director and Kyle and there wasn't going to be a lot of um, leeway in a lot of respects for him. And then all of a sudden they go on these winning tears and and now nobody would touch Kyle. He's got basically an unlimited contract, you know, so (laughs) I think you kind of have to I think you have to give it to him based on all of that together. Yeah, I mean, it, this guy has done such an amazing job. I know there's a lot of national media people who think he is probably one of the most underrated coaches in the country, and he's done such amazing things. And recruiting is one spot where he's really picked up a top 35 class this past cycle in 2021, wrapped up in February, top five in the conference, which is always important. And this class is loaded. You mentioned some impact transfers, TJ Pledger out of Oklahoma, Chris Curry out of LSU, some impact in – really, really high potential guys out of high school too. But for you, what were the biggest positional needs for the Utes? And who, who, when you're looking at this class, who could be an instant impact player? That's a good question. And I think, you know, we've touched on probably the, the two that I would think most is quarterback and running back. And I know that sounds cliche and, and it's the position groups that always get kind of the most love. But I think given how terrible Utah was at quarterback last year, they had to land a home run there. And they did. I mean, it was, I think it was less than 24 hours after the season ended that they get the, the commitment from Jaquindon Jackson. And then Charlie Brewer comes, I think, that same day. I, I can't remember the exact timeline. Um, but, I mean, they, they went to work, you know, and they found their deficiencies and they went in there and they, they got it done. 
And then obviously some of that had to change when, when Ty Jordan died and, and, and all that. But um, I think, you know, running back is going to be an important position, but I think the, the position group that has helped them the most is, is honestly quarterback. And I think, you know, that, that alone is the transfer uh, is going to be the, the biggest opportunity. Now they obviously did really well in their recruiting class and they kind of got a lot of, of, um, talent, especially at linebacker. I think linebacker is going to be a huge position group for them and being able to bring in a lot of this this new talent and, and trying to, to bring in guys that, that are going to acclimate to that defense. So you're, you're seeing them bring in a lot of these these talent, and they're, they're just reloading in a lot of these positions. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's the consistency that they've had and the ability to be able to use that transfer portal that, that has been um, a lot of success for Utah. Right. And I mean, you mentioned these guys, but just some players that could be on the roster always seem to shine at just weird moments. Like no one expected Ty Jordan last year. We see it every year. There's this guys that's like, man, where did he come from? What players on this roster right now do you look at and say, okay, that's my pick for breakout players next season? Ooh, that's a, that's a good one. Um, breakout players. Um, I'm, I'm going to go with Solomon Enos. I think, you know, he's, he's a guy that Utah fans have been really excited to, to see. Um, he's a wide receiver here. Um, he's, he's got a lot of talent. His, he was a, a guy that Penn State really tried hard to get. His dad played for Penn State, so he was a legacy recruit that way. And then Utah was able to flip him. And then the last few years, they've just kind of not utilized him. Um, behind the scenes, he's the glue for a lot of that offense. He does a lot. He's, he's the guy that's out there as the wide receiver that's blocking, which you don't often see a ton. Um, but I think he's going to have a breakout year. I, I think there's just something different about the way Utah's um, kind of constructing their offense this year that I feel like he's going to have a big season, especially with some of these other receivers that have transferred out, you know, like uh, Brian Thompson. Um, I, I think the, the sheer nature of him being a veteran and, and having guys that are going to look for him I think he's going to be that breakout guy. Yeah, I'll definitely be looking out for him. But, I mean, looking ahead to 2021, I look at the schedule. And, you know, I haven't said this much. I'm always like, man, this is such a tough schedule. I look at this one, I'm like, I think this Utah team has a real opportunity to make a run at a Pac-12 title berth, a real chance to make a Pac-12 title run. The tricky road games to me, San Diego State, BYU is always tough to go play there, but I don't know if they're going to be the same without Zach Wilson. I don't know what they're looking like going into next season. But, of course, USC-Oregon are the two biggest games on the schedule, especially with what both those programs have been doing in terms of recruiting. What is the ceiling and or floor for you for this 2021 Utah team, Utah team giving the schedule, the breakout players, and all the returning talent? You know, it's, it's, it's hard because I get the same sense um, from this team that we got back in 2018 where they, you know, they almost got into the playoffs. I don't think they're as talented as that team. I think they've got a lot more uh, questions surrounding them, and I think they could be as talented there, but I don't know if they're. So for me, I think initially on, I think the ceiling is probably about 10-win season. Um, I think they could exceed that maybe. I mean, I'd, I'd be surprised, but I think 10-win would be the ceiling. I think they're probably somewhere in the 8-9 to nine range just the way that it shakes out. USC, for whatever reason, they've had such a difficult time playing at the Coliseum. I mean, who who doesn't, right? But for whatever reason, Utah, they can have the lead. They can have whatever gifted to them, you know, and they can be easily the better team, and then they find a way to lose in the Coliseum. And you get that this year. So, I mean, that's a tough one. 
Um, but I think you're right. I mean, I think the schedule lines up really well. I don't think they'll necessarily have a problem with BYU. I, they've lost a lot of their their big talent that they had from that 11 and one season. Um, you know, things could be different. Who knows? But I, I don't necessarily see that one lining up. But then you get Oregon um, at the end of the season. You get them at home, which is always good, but that, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to beat Oregon. And I think Oregon has enough question marks surrounding them still with their offensive line, quarterback play, all that different stuff, that it's, it's hard to predict who they're going to be. Um, but I, I don't know. Like That's what's so hard about this, because last year I would have said Colorado was going to be a terrible team, and then they come out and they start doing really well. And UCLA, <laughs> you can see that they're kind of starting to, to put it up together a little bit. Um, I still don't believe in them quite as much, but I think, you know, it's fortunate and and fortuitous for Utah to have the schedule that they have, and I think it's just a matter of if they can execute at a high level, especially on offense. Right, and I like that you were starting to mention toward the end the parity of the Pac-12 is kind of on the upswing. I look at even a team like Arizona State. Last year, I thought if – things maybe swing a little bit different way they can make a big run as well so you have utah arizona state usc washington's probably going to be back this year i mean they were back last year but covid kind of knocked them out but you mentioned utah had a chance at the playoffs it was that oregon um utah game in the pac-12 championship that really determined it but there were a lot of people saying even if you guys won, you didn't belong in the playoffs oregon of course did not make the playoffs because they lost arizona state but for you do you think the Pac-12 gets enough respect in the eyes of the college football playoff and just national media perspective? And what are some steps that you think need to be taken to improve that perception? I think it's a mixed bag. I think they definitely aren't um, perceived as, you know, as, as great as any of these other conferences. And there's always that debate who has the worst conference, the ACC or the big Tw- or Pac-12. Um, and and it's, it's tough. I mean, the Pac-12 hasn't, done itself any favors with Larry Scott and, and, and kind of the way that he's marketed, marketed it. Um, just having the games on the Pac-12 alone and, and creating that environment has made it really difficult for the brand to be able to get out there. The games are late. I mean, I'm, I'm leaving the stadium at like 2 in the morning after I finished interviews and everything, um, but that's when the games end at midnight. You know, I mean, and, and on the East Coast, who's staying up till 2 in the morning to watch Utah play Colorado? I mean, nobody. Like, that's that's just not going to happen. I mean, you might get lucky with a USC or, or Oregon or maybe Washington, but even then that's tough. And so I think you just have some logistic stuff that way where, you know, timeline wise ESPN wants to put them at the later spot because it fits, but at the same time, it doesn't help their brand. And you haven't had a conference commissioner that's, that's really pushed that or, or done anything to promote that brand. Um, in, in terms of the parody though, I think a lot of people miss that. I, th- I think you, you miss how, how equal a lot of these programs are. And, and I think that goes to the detriment and the success of the PAC 12 in the sense that, you know, the PAC 12 just other than a few years in, in the last decade or so, you haven't had a team that's really just dominated. And you knew that let's say Oregon was going to just take it all the way. And they went to the, you know, college football playoffs a couple or a few years ago, but you have so many teams that could beat each other that it makes it difficult. And so, when you're looking at rankings and you're looking at different things, it's hard to be able to evaluate a team that's lost two or three games, even though they probably could beat maybe some of these other teams um, that are, that have lost maybe one game or something. And so it's, I think in that respect, you don't get a lot of um, opportunities for the PAC 12 to showcase their talent because it's just like, Oh, it's the PAC 12. They do whatever they want on the West coast and, and uh, they're not that good. And so I think that's probably what's hurt them the most.
Yeah, I agree. I just like to, you know, I like to address it. It's been a common theme here since we started the podcast because being an Auburn graduate and my co-host being an LSU guy, we're big S, we have a big SEC following. We get the comments all the time. It's like, who cares about Washington State versus so-and-so? And I'm like, it's a good game. Like, <laughs> like, it's like it, it, you need to watch it. And so, like, it's been a common theme here. So I like to get other people to talk talk about it. So it doesn't just seem like I'm on, this is the hill I'm going to die on. But last question here, man, I haven't been out there yet, but I do have a friend who just moved to Utah, and he said it's gorgeous. He's been talking to me about coming out there. But what makes Salt Lake City, Rice-Eccles Stadium, such a unique environment on game days? I think the, the 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 atmosphere and the climate uh, make it work really well. You've got you know a beautiful mountain range behind Rice Eccles Stadium that you know on the right day. I mean, there's no, there's no better view in college football. There there are. I mean, I've been to Washington and and I don't know if you've been there, but it's beautiful to see out there. Um, but you've you've got just a beautiful landscape and you've got fans that are just passionate. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's different. It's not you know you know speaking to kind of your your fan base here is the SEC. It's not that same kind of passion, but they're loud, you know, and they they get in there, they're involved in the game, and they're crazy, and, and, and it's in a tough environment to play. Um, last year was different. Obviously, you didn't have that, and I think that took a lot away the competitive advantage of just not having a fan base that is that rabid fan base that has nothing better to do right now than to just kind of antagonize the opposing team. And so, you know, I think you mix all that together. You've got beautiful climate. You've got you've got this fan base that is 100% supportive of it. You know, you've got a big rivalry that that is one of the best in, in all of college football, especially out west. You know, and I think it, it just provides an atmosphere that that allows people to really get that college football environment that that isn't the SEC or isn't the Big Ten. You know, it's it's a different type, and and I don't know if you get a lot of that out west. Um, you you know, USC is obviously the big name out here, and and they're going to be the powerhouse. But beyond that, a lot of these other Pac-12 programs, they don't have that same kind of um, ability to kind of rally that fan base that just would do anything for the team. Right. I mean, when I look at the Pac-12, I feel like there's like four or five schools that don't get enough credit for the environment they put out. I would say Utah. I would say Utson with um, Oregon doesn't get enough credit for how they do. You mentioned Washington Husky Stadium is that I think they have wow. the record for mm-hmm. the de- for the highest decibels. And then you mentioned the Coliseum. That's just a legendary stadium. And you know UCLA isn't what it is, but the Rose Bowl is always just going to be that stadium. So I mean. Uh, even SEC, as an SEC guy, and you know we have Big Ten listeners too, the Pac-12 does not get enough credit for the amazing environments that are in the conference. Um, but man, I appreciate you coming on. I love talking, you know, Utah football. It was uh, we started this just because I know a lot of our SEC fans. They're just like, we are tuned into Alabama, we are tuned into Auburn, LSU. So it's so awesome to hear about all these other programs across the country, but where can they find you? Where can they find all the Utah football content you put out there? Yeah, my main uh, locations would be on Twitter at jfurksl, J-F-U-R-K-S-L. And then I, you can read my stuff at an easy website called ksl.com. So it's it's pretty easy, and I'm pretty active on um, on Twitter. And then when, when AP Top 25 stuff comes out, I'm pretty active on Twitter about that. So hit me up if you have any questions, and I'll do my best. It's not an exact science by any means, but I do my best. <laughs> I, I, I got to be – that and being like a Hosman voter have to, has to be like such an honor, but it's like 
man, I might have to be anonymous some, some <laughs> weeks because there's some weeks where you guys get just the brunt of everyone's anger. But I appreciate you coming on, man. We'll definitely be reaching out closer to the season um, as, you know, everything gets into full swing. But, guys, make sure to go check out Josh and all the content. Utah is going to be a program you're going to want to follow. Y'all know where to find us. Make sure to subscribe on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. But for Josh, myself, and the Blue Bloods guys, we are out. <laughs>